0: If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 19. We will finish John 19 tonight. We will begin at verse 31 and continue through the end at verse 42. Hear now the reading of God's holy an inerrant and inspired word. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen and testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken." And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one, in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby." The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word, to receive what it teaches us concerning the sufferings of Jesus and concerning how he suffered for us and how he suffered in fulfillment of the scriptures. And now we see even in this darkest hour, this hour of Jesus' death, we see see men being added to the faith. We see your work in this world being done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at the sufferings of Jesus as presented in the Gospel of John. We've seen now his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, and his death, and all of the steps along the way. Now, these were great evils. There were horrific acts of injustice. There was great corruption and violence on display. And yet all of this occurred according to the definite plan and purpose of God. We have seen this and how Jesus has conducted himself through all of this. The way he has gone about his resistance and defense or relative lack thereof shows that he knew where this was going and where it had to go in order for his people to be saved. This was also shown in the way that Jesus sprinkles or that John sprinkles in all these notes from the scriptures from the Old Testament showing how many of the even seemingly small and insignificant details of Jesus' sufferings occur in fulfillment of prophecy, showing that he is the Messiah who was to come and save his people from their sins. Now in the church, often when we come to the sufferings of Christ, particularly his death, we think a lot about Friday and we think a lot about Sunday. That means we think a lot about Jesus' crucifixion, and we often then jump straight ahead to his resurrection, but we often think very little about what goes on between the two. But tonight, in this final portion of John 19, that is where we are going to focus John's account of the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection, which we will, Lord willing, look at next time. So we will look at this time between tonight in three points. First, confirmation in verses 31 through 34. We see some events recorded as proof that Jesus was dead. And then second, we see certification in verses 35 through 37. John attests to witnessing these events and how they come in fulfillment of the scriptures. And then third, we see care in verses 38 through 42. We see in this time of trouble who some of Jesus' real friends were, and they come from unlikely places. So confirmation, certification, and care, those are our points for this evening. First, we come to confirmation in verses 31 through 34. So we read in verse 31 that this was the preparation day. This was a way particular to that Jewish context of saying that it was Friday. It was the day of preparation for Saturday, which was the Jewish Sabbath. It was on Friday that all the necessary preparations for Saturday had to be made because no work was permitted on the Sabbath. So Friday was the day for cooking, cleaning, doing all that was necessary to properly observe the Sabbath that ran from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, because that's how the Jews measured days. They measured them starting at sundown. Now, this preparation day was particularly important because it was the preparation day of the week of Passover, was perhaps the most important preparation day for the most important Sabbath of the entire year, because the Passover was the largest and most important of the Jewish festivals. Now, to add to the fact that this was a very important preparation day for a very important Sabbath, the Jews had a particular law, in the Old Testament concerning prisoners who died by hanging. And this was the law specified in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. It says there, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, if you were reading the laws of Israel as set forth in Deuteronomy, this one almost feels a little out of place. It's nestled between instructions for dealing with rebellious sons, sons that were so rebellious that they had to be stoned to death, and then returning livestock of your neighbors that wander off. So it's kind of... Strangely inserted in this section of miscellaneous laws about conduct in the land of Israel. And yet, because God does not waste his words, and in light of what we have seen regarding the sufferings of Jesus, this passage clearly anticipates Jesus' sufferings. Hanging on a tree was not the typical Jewish mode of execution. They preferred stoning. But when the Romans are running things, This was how they did it. They would do death by crucifixion, this hanging of prisoners on a tree. But this law in Deuteronomy places certain regulations on executions done by hanging. First, it is clear that those who die by hanging are cursed. Now, it is fascinating that the text in Deuteronomy says that this hanging on a tree comes for those who have committed a sin deserving of death. Sin deserving of death brings a cursed death on a tree. This goes to show, this goes to reinforce that the sinless Jesus suffered the sort of death we deserved. For all sin deserves death, and Jesus, though innocent, suffered the curse of death that sin deserved. But of concern after Jesus' death is this regulation about leaving bodies hanging overnight. The Jews were not allowed to do that, and they didn't want to have to be dealing with these dead bodies on the Sabbath. They would have to be always mindful of this, but especially mindful of this not only on a Sabbath, but the high Sabbath of the Passover. If they left these bodies hanging, the law of Deuteronomy told them that it defiled the land, it polluted the land. It left something of a stain on the land and an accumulation of such sin and evil in the land would ultimately lead to loss and destruction of the land. Now, once again, we are confronted with the irony that the leaders of the Jews have just carried out a murderous plot against an innocent man, which is a moral travesty, and yet they are still very concerned with maintaining proper ceremonial observance in how they did it. Well did Jesus once call them, whitewashed tombs, or describe them in a parable as dishes cleaned on the outside but not the inside. They will keep all the external trappings of their religion, but ignore and pollute and defile the substance of it. And yet even in this, God is working all things according to his will. Now this concern with leaving the bodies hanging prompts the action of John 19.31. The Jews requested that the Romans break the legs of the crucified prisoners. Remember that crucifixion was a death by gradual suffocation. As one became, able to, became unable to pull himself up for air and breathe, um, it would suffocate. But this could take days to happen. Breaking the legs would greatly accelerate death because it would make it much harder for the crucified persons to breathe. They couldn't push themselves up to get air. The Jews did not want to violate their laws on the eve of their greatest religious holiday, and so they asked the Romans to speed up the process, and the Romans obliged. The soldiers come, and they break the the legs of the other two who were crucified with Jesus. But they come to Jesus and find that after he had only been there a few hours, he was already dead, so no breaking was necessary. Remember from before that Jesus, before he was crucified, he underwent a major scourging. And in fact, given the timelines presented in the different Gospels, he likely underwent two, two severe beatings with whips, one before and one after he was condemned to crucifixion. So in other words, he had already been severely weakened, severely injured. He would have lost a lot of blood and suffered a lot of physical damage before he was even crucified. And this was providential. It contributed to the fulfillment of a prophecy that we will look at here a bit later. But that said, they wanted to make absolutely sure that Jesus was dead. They weren't going to take any chances. And so this is where the piercing with the spear comes in. They pierce Jesus' side, and blood and water flow out from his side. Now, there are varying theories and interpretations offered as to what was described here, both physiologically and spiritually. Physiologically, it seems that this kind of buildup of water, or some kind of clear liquid in that part of the body, would be caused by a ruptured heart. In such a case, fluid would build up and then uh, it would separate from the blood. Now, there's been a lot of arguments made from this about Jesus and speculation about how Jesus died of a broken heart, which I don't think is particularly accurate or helpful, especially as we've reflected all throughout this, how Jesus was sovereign and all that was happening. I think John's description here serves a much more practical purpose. It attests clearly and undeniably to the fact that Jesus really died. If a Roman executioner squad was good at one thing, it was making people dead. And they weren't going to relent from their duties until the job was done. That they don't break Jesus' legs means that they were certain, and they being authoritative on death, that Jesus was dead. And they pierce his very heart. If there was any remaining doubt that he might have been alive, this would put any such doubts to rest. He was dead, and he was confirmed as such. Now this is important, given how many deniers of Christ have his taught, have historically tried to explain away his death. Popular among atheists and Muslims and others is the swoon theory. The idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross that day. They would say he was beaten and hanged to the point of something very near death. He was in a deep comatose state that could be confused for death. But that he was still alive and they put him in the tomb and he healed up and woke up on Sunday morning. Now this is absurd on multiple levels. Not just because of what we see in this passage, but also because if Jesus was in a near comatose state, how would he heal up well enough on Sunday to get up on his own power, roll away the stone of his tomb and leave? But these are the lies that the spiritually blind tell themselves to avoid confessing the truth about Jesus. What John describes here can be nothing more than a certain death. And we know John's interest in documenting the physical and spiritual facts of Jesus' death because of our next point. After confirmation, we come to certification in verses 35 through 37. John here insists on the validity of his testimony because it was eyewitness testimony. Remember that probably by this point all the other disciples had left, but John was there. He was present at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus talked to him from the cross. John was there until the very end. John is not writing about these events as someone who was told about them later by someone else. He saw them with his own eyes. He would have seen these Roman soldiers pass on breaking Jesus' legs. He would have seen the piercing. He would have seen the water and blood come out. You don't miss things like that. You don't forget or confuse things like that. But why does John tell this? He specifies at the end of verse 35, he records these things so that you may believe. He does recognize something about the implausibility of Christ's death and resurrection to the average person. And yet John has recorded them and insisted on their authenticity so that those who might hear and those whose hearts the Spirit opens may believe in Christ and so know the Father. Really, this is the culmination of everything that John has written. All of the life and teachings of Jesus have pointed us here, and now we're here. Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, who has accomplished the salvation of his people, of those who by faith believe. And apart from him, there is no salvation. Like a broken record, I say, no Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. And John underscores this by describing how even these events after Jesus' death come in fulfillment of prophecy. First, he cites Psalm 3420. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken, it says there in the psalm. And this was David's own praise for deliverance when he had escaped his enemies. But it was also prophetic concerning Jesus. None of his bones were broken. His legs did not have to be broken because he was already dead when it was time for leg breaking. But this also points to another image, one that would be very relevant that Friday afternoon. In the law concerning the Passover, the lamb that they were to eat was to be killed and eaten, but none of its bones were to be broken. We see that as Jesus is viewed by the Jews as an inconvenience and potential hindrance to their observance of the Passover, he actually is the very fulfillment of it. He's the perfect and spotless Lamb whose blood was spilled for the forgiveness of sins and for the washing of sins, and this without his bones being broken. But speaking of his blood being spilled, John also calls to mind a prophecy concerning Jesus piercing, the prophecy of Zechariah 12:10, which says, "And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves." for a firstborn. On that Friday, Jerusalem pierced God. They pierced the Son. Just weeks later, at Pentecost, Peter will boldly preach that fact to them, and over 3,000 of them will be cut to the heart themselves and repent of their sins and come to Jesus for their salvation. They look upon the one they pierced. But it's not time for that yet. At this point, Jesus lies dead. And in that moment, some unlikely friends, some unlikely helpers emerge. And this brings us to our final point. After confirmation and certification, we come to care in verses 38 through 42. As Jesus is now dead, and as it is this day of preparation, and time is running out, something must be done with his body. And here these unlikely helpers appear. First, we are introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy and important man, and he was a member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. This is reported in the other Gospels, for instance, in Mark 15, 43. Now this Joseph, he was a disciple of Christ, though in secret. You think about the Sanhedrin, you think about the leaders of the Jews and how they had often related to Jesus. They were quite a hostile crowd. Joseph would not have been able to publicly express belief in Jesus. If he had, they likely would have cast him out and punished him. And yet, this does not stop John and Matthew from acknowledging Joseph as a disciple. Or Mark acknowledges Joseph as one who was waiting for the kingdom of God, and then Luke, in his account, calls Joseph a good and just man. He was just in a difficult situation where he could not practice or express his faith openly up to that point, as many people are. But in this darkest hour, after all others have seemingly forsaken Jesus, it is this Joseph who comes through in providing care and a place of burial for Jesus. But Joseph has help from someone else, another influential council member that we have met before, Nicodemus. You might remember Nicodemus from his secret meeting with Jesus in John 3, and then his attempts to talk the council down from their murderous plot in John 7. John even specifically states he's the one who came to Jesus by night, lest there be any confusion. This is the same guy. and Nicodemus comes with the spices and perfumes, a hundred pounds worth, quite an effort, So that he can anoint Jesus' body for burial. So, suddenly, after it seems that these two did not want to be publicly identified with Jesus, Joseph and Nicodemus, at the time of his death, take a public stand for Jesus. They had to come to Pilate and ask for the body. This action would have been known by their fellow council members. Also, they were coming to take a dead body and to anoint it. This would have made them ceremonially unclean for a time. It would have hindered their observance of the Passover. But their love and concern for Jesus prevails. Now, much is made in our day as a part of the social justice and social gospel movements and all the false teachings that they have brought into the church about how Jesus was for the poor and the weak and the oppressed. And some press this so far to the point where they say that if we want to be like Jesus and numbered among Jesus' people, we must identify with the poor and needy and oppressed. And yet here, in the darkest of hours, when all others have forsaken, here are a couple of wealthy, and influential and powerful men demonstrating their love for Jesus and faith in him and giving self-sacrificially for his cause. They, too, have their place in Christ's kingdom. They, too, are counted among his people and his friends. So they come and they bind Jesus' body and prepare it for burial. Burial. And then they took Jesus and buried him in this new garden tomb. Matthew records that this was Joseph's own tomb. He had likely had it cut out of the stone in anticipation of his own death and burial. But he allows it to be used for the burial of Jesus. It was a nice tomb. It was a new tomb. It was in a garden. Now this again shows the amount of love and care that Joseph has for Jesus. It was also a fulfillment of a prophecy, that of Isaiah 53, 9, where it says that Jesus was with the rich at his death. Also, as John is taking great care to document the authenticity of Jesus' death, as well as his coming resurrection, he notes that no one had been buried in this tomb before. See, Jewish tombs would typically be reused, Bodies would lay there, they'd be anointed with all these herbs and spices and they would decompose down to bones and then the bones would be moved and stored in boxes and then the tomb could be used again. But this tomb was new. And this is important because it makes very clear that it was Jesus who walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning. There was no one else buried there who it could be. This tomb was also convenient. It was located somewhere nearby. And given that it was the preparation day and time was short, that was what they needed. God has, through his servant Joseph, providentially provided the perfect sort of tomb in the perfect sort of place for Jesus to be buried and from which Jesus would be raised in a couple of days. And while not recorded in John, we also know that this tomb would be secured, both with a large stone, the kind that would require some great physical effort to move, and also a Roman guard, because the Jews were afraid that given Jesus' prophecies about resurrection, someone might try to steal the body. All of this, making it all the more sweet and perfect, and undeniable when Jesus is raised. But we will save that for next time. For now, let us contemplate what we have seen even in this darkest hour, where Jesus has died, where for many hope seems lost, and many have left Jesus behind. But here God is still working. Here, John records the authentic eyewitness details that help to prove the, death, the, the truth of Jesus' death and his coming resurrection. Here, God, through those disinterested pagan Roman executioners, upheld his own word by not allowing Jesus' bones to be broken and by bringing Jerusalem to look on the one they had pierced. And here God, through these influential and wealthy but formerly cowardly men, Joseph and Nicodemus, provided care for Jesus' body and burial in the perfect kind of tomb that will set the stage for Jesus' resurrection in such a way that no other explanation is possible. Though the hour is dark, Though Christ has suffered and died, though it seems that evil has won, evil and Satan and the world are in for a surprise because God is still working in all of this. Christ, who though he has died, though he seems dead, though he still remains sovereign over what is happening, And it will make his return on Sunday all the more sweet and all the more undeniable. Jesus is Lord, even as he lies dead in the tomb. The time of seemingly greatest weakness and defeat, he rules and reigns. And on Sunday, everyone will know and see. So what will you do with this Jesus? He who suffered, he who died he who was pierced for our transgressions? Will you be like so many who turn away, who deny the undeniable, who ignore the unignorable? Or will you, like we saw here with Joseph and Nicodemus, will you be found in him even in the darkest hour? Will you embrace Jesus in faith? Will you, like John, tell the story so that others may believe? because Sunday does come and Jesus lives and there is life in him alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is recorded for us so that we might believe. And I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe, we would see the great love that you have had for us, and that your son had for us in suffering and dying for us, and that you would write this word on our hearts, and that by faith we would believe. And for those who believe, I pray that we would be faithful to take this message to a lost and dying world that needs to hear, for there is salvation in no other name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamelopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.